Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is WBEZ's Weekly News Recap. Each week, we catch you up on the biggest local and state stories that you might have missed. Stories like these. Lawmakers are back in Springfield for the fall legislative session. One of the central focuses or points of focus over the next couple of weeks will be the congressional map that's been redrawn by state legislators who've used the latest census figures. Riding the CTA might get cheaper for some of you. The proposed budget for next year is out. It includes more fare discounts. Today is the funeral for Chicago civil rights activist, historian and icon Timuel Black. He spent decades educating people and fighting for the African-American community. The love that the community has for my husband is very touching. Joining me for those stories and more, Hannah Meisel, government and politics editor at NPR Illinois. Hannah, happy Friday. Thanks for having me. And Paris Schutz, WTTW correspondent and co-anchor of Chicago Tonight. Hey, Paris. Hey, Sasha. Thanks for having me. Hannah, I'll start with you. Legislators have been in Springfield all week for the fall session. And at the top of the agenda is approving a new congressional map for Illinois. What does the latest draft look like and what does it mean for Illinois Democrats and Republicans? Well, we saw the uh, latest draft last Friday, and we're not expecting that to be what lawmakers ultimately approve, especially because we've seen so much infighting uh, from Democrats uh, over that map. So, uh, you know, especially in places like, uh, you know, Danny Davis's district, uh, uh, he argues that the map is unfair to him and his constituents, but nowhere has it been, uh, you know, so vocal as the residents, the constituents of the 3rd District, Marie Newman's district, and the congresswoman herself has been uh, pretty, you know, outwardly upset about how uh, Springfield Democrats threw that district, uh, which, you know, traditionally it had stretched uh, from the city, you know, southwest side, Bridgeport, to the southwest suburbs. But now, under this new draft map, it wouldn't even go into the city, and it would stretch all the way west to Starved Rock State Park, and that would make the district a lot more white and rural. And, you know, she and constituents of hers who have been, um, you know, actively lobbying in front of lawmakers say that that's just not fair. It, you know, totally obliterates the character of the district, and it's just, it doesn't do anyone any good. And so we are waiting to see when another proposal will drop, but we haven't seen that yet. But uh, lawmakers, they, you know, Democrats, I should say, they're the ones who control Springfield, control this map making process. Right. They want to get this done before the end of next week. Lawmakers came to town for a couple of days and then cut out early. That means that next week is going to be much, a very heavy workload. And remind us again, Hannah, why these congressional maps are being redrawn in the first place? Well, every 10 years after a census, these congressional maps, uh, legislative maps, other types of uh, maps, you know, we've also seen that Chicago City Council, they're going through this process now, too. Uh, they get redrawn to reflect, better reflect how the population has shifted over the last 10 years. We've seen the big story out of the census, the 2020 census, is the growth of the Latino population, not just in Illinois, but, you know, most 
states, most places. I saw a story this morning uh, saying that the Chicago City Council, you know, the suggested wards would make more Latino uh, voting uh, age districts and, you know, cut back a bit on Black-focused districts. And so there's that tension and that exists at City Council, that exists in Springfield and, you know, it exists also with uh, how these congressional maps are going to shake out. So, well, well, Hannah, that was a proposal put out by the, the head of the Latino caucus uh, mm. chair on city council, Gil Viegas, basically saying uh, the Latino population has grown in Chicago, as it has in Illinois, as you said, and it should be reflected in more wards that are majority Latino. The thing is, it would sacrifice African-American majority wards as that population has gone down in Chicago. And, and you're right, Hannah, that's this is going to be a very contentious uh, debate that, it, and in the past, it has come down along sort of racial lines. You know, um, it's just a negotiation between African Americans and Latinos, and now perhaps Asians with an Asian majority ward. Yeah. So, bottom line here, Hannah, this map isn't a sure thing at this point. No, it's definitely not a sure thing. And even uh, Democrats last week, when they put out the map, they just referred to it as a draft map, and some folks are wondering whether there were deeper strategies, was it a head fake, you know, uh, especially because Illinois is losing a congressional district. We currently have 18, uh, and under the new maps, we'll only have 17. The current breakdown is 13 for Democrats, 5 for Republicans, and under the draft map, it would be a 14-3 split. But, uh, you know, those who have looked back at the, you know, past election numbers have, you know, kind of crunched the data, say, you know, this 14-3 map, at least how it's drawn right now, it does not guarantee Democrats' victory, uh, you know, next year or even five years down the line. There right. are real weaknesses to it where Republicans could break through. And so, you know, I don't think anyone thinks that this is what's going to pass. But again, we have not seen a final map yet. Democrats are also pushing another piece of controversial legislation. It would repeal the law that's requiring parental notification for girls under 18 who want to seek an abortion. Is this law likely to be overturned, Hannah? You know, I think this is another kind of classic case of Democratic infighting. Um, I think uh, more moderate Democrats they're worried about this fight. They're worried about, um, you know, the potential implications here. But progressives are all for kind of removing one of the last bits of laws that restrict abortions that are on Illinois' books. Uh, several years ago, we started seeing a very, you know, a push to get rid of Illinois' old abortion laws. And we saw the laws that allowed for such things like Medicaid to pay for abortions and in 2019, we saw the Reproductive Health Act that would kind of enshrine abortion as a fundamental right in uh -huh. the states and the books. And so this was all in preparation for an eventual uh, challenge, a direct challenge at the U.S. Supreme Court to Roe v. Wade. And now we are actually there. In December, the Supreme Court will hear a case that's a direct challenge. And then this is also a reaction to the Texas six-week abortion ban going into effect right. in early September. In Paris, uh, Democratic Representative LaShawn Ford, he introduced a bill that would give prisoners the right to vote. Fill us in. Well, this is kind of another example of Illinois going in an opposite direction that uh, many states, uh, especially Republican-led states, are going where they're trying to enact 
voter restrictions, Illinois has consistently tried to loosen the standards of voting and make voting easier. Representative Ford wants to have um, you know prison inmates, convicted felons, uh, give them the ability to vote just because um, they are convicted or they are inmates. He doesn't believe that means they should automatically just lose that franchise. It's controversial. Um, it doesn't seem to have much momentum in the Senate, the state Senate. I think there's uh, some Republicans that say um, not only do they think that, you know, as a condition of being convicted of a felony, you lose your franchise, but also it could be a very dangerous thing. You could have you could be influenced by, you know, by pressure in prison, by people that say, well, we're going to beat you up if you don't vote a certain way. I mean, I don't know how realistic a scenario that would be, but that's a, that's being floated out there as a reason for being opposed to it. There have been a lot of um, bills that have made voting uh, easier in Illinois. This, this kind of continues along that line, although it just doesn't seem like this one at this point has the same momentum. Lawmakers are also debating whether to change parole laws. Paris, tell us about the celebrities who stepped in to show support for this one. Yeah, well, see, this is a fight that's been going on for a while. Prison reform advocates have, have been calling for a reinstatement of parole in Illinois, and it really got a high-profile boost this week with Common and Chance the Rapper uh, holding a press conference outside of Cook County Jail uh, calling on the need for this. And, you know, I had a, I had a prison reform activist call me years ago uh, putting this on my radar, and I, my first reaction was, wait, there's no parole in Illinois? I mean, it's kind of one of those things that you don't, you don't even realize. The, the state got rid of parole um, back in the 70s, I think, and I think the reasoning then was parole was inequitable because it, it seemed like more white folks were getting out on parole and, and, and uh, black and brown folks were staying in prison. But the thing is, you know, it, it, that hasn't really helped equity at all to get rid of it. And so there's really no mechanism right now for, uh, you know, for good behavior, for, mm-hmm. you know, being a model prisoner, but, you know, get, get, earning parole and having a parole officer, you know, monitor you out on parole, that just doesn't exist. So you serve in Illinois 85% usually um, of your sentence without any chance of that changing. So Common and Chance have stepped in to give this issue a boost to say, you know, people people deserve a second chance. You know, they deserve they deserve a chance to, to re-enter society and not be incarcerated for their whole lives. Let's briefly touch on another legislation that impacts law enforcement. Uh, Hannah, tell us about the Republican proposal that would give police chiefs the authority to override the state's attorney's decision to not file felony charges. Right. This is, um, you know, kind of another line of attack from Republicans and those who are unhappy with Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox's, you know, performance in the office because it is uh, directly focused on, you know, it, the language in the bill is counties more with a population of you know, I think more than three million, which, of course, is only Cook County in Illinois. And so, yeah, you know, they point to several recent cases where horrendous cases where the state's attorney's office has not ended up filing charges, um, you know, citing things like insufficient evidence. Uh, In one case, you know, the state's attorney reversed course, you know, after so much outcry. But we've seen in recent months, for sure, a a unified strategy among Republicans at the state level, um, a lot nationally, where we have seen a rise in violent crime uh, during the pandemic mm-hmm. for lots of lots of reasons, um, especially in Illinois, where Republicans really have so little power. This is one of the things that they can use their bully pulpit for and say, hey, 
you know, we're, we're swinging the pendulum so far to the, you know, to the left, to the progressive policies, and, you know, they're failing. And whether or not they, I'm no, you know, scientist who measures these kinds of things, but, like, it's definitely something that resonates with folks, as we've seen concern over violent crime rise right. um, over the last year and a half. Let's turn to city politics now. Mayor Lightfoot seems to be in a feud with outgoing Inspector General Joe Ferguson, saying that he's a, quote, speck on the rearview mirror. Harsh words. Paris, you interviewed mm-hmm. Joe Ferguson just a few days ago, right? Yes. What's going yeah, on? And it's harsh words. And I, and I think she she's taking personally something that he said, you know, from, from his perch as Inspector General, what he said basically was Mayor Lightfoot wasn't living up to the promises of being transparent and ethical like she ran on in her campaign, specifically when it comes to his probe of the fallout from the Anjanette Young case. We remember Anjanette Young, the woman who uh, was the victim of an unwarranted uh, CPD raid. And so he was probing the mayor's office's reaction, everything that happened afterward. And what he said was, at the time, the mayor said, we're going to cooperate. Uh, you know, because the mayor had to walk back statements about what she knew about this raid and when. So there's some confusion there. So he's probing it. She says, we're going to cooperate. And what he said this week was, not only did she not cooperate, but she hired uh, her own law firm to conduct a parallel investigation, which frankly is a classic stonewalling move. When you don't want someone independent investigating something that you did, mm-hmm. you, you create your own investigation. And he was very critical of that. So she kind of took it personally. And this is a week, mind you, after she wrote a column praising the job that Ferguson did as inspector general. It's very important for listeners to understand. You know, Ferguson was there for 12 years. That office did not have much teeth uh, before he came in. Wow. He expanded the scope of that office to investigate city council, to oversee CPD. They did numerous investigations and audits, everything from CPD and Laquan McDonald down to how to do tree trimming and garbage collection more efficiently. So it became a really consequential check and balance on city government. And when you have the mayor now um, getting into this war of words with him because of uh, what seem to be legitimate criticisms he has about her own transparency, that that kind of worries Chicagoans a bit in the sense of they have to pick a new inspector general. And that office has to be independent and it has to be ambitious because we know uh, things in city government get out of hand. And by the way, When he got the authority to investigate aldermen, there were all kinds of aldermanic corruption cases that went to the feds and that the feds have prosecuted. And a lot of those cases started with the IG. So you have to have someone watching the hen house. And and there's going to be a spotlight on city council and the mayor now to get this replacement selection right, to get someone in there that continues that independence. And uh, Chicago historian and civil rights activist Timuel Black is being honored this week. His private funeral today is close to the public, but is being live streamed. Yesterday, there was a public viewing held for him. He passed away last week at the age of 102. So much to say here, Paris, but briefly, tell us Mr. Black's legacy. I, I don't even know how you could boil down his legacy. I mean, 102 years, he, he marched with uh, Dr. Martin Luther King in Chicago. He was instrumental in helping elect the city's first ever African-American mayor, Harold Washington. He was a close uh, ally of um, then-community organizer Barack Obama. Um, You know, at WTTW, any time that we had any question about Chicago history or or black history in Chicago, we'd go to Dr. Dr. Black. I Mm -hmm. mean, and he was the sweetest guy and and nice and and down-to-earth, and he was just a font of information. 
but to the African American community, I mean, he's he, he's a lion. He's he, he's he's on the Mount Rushmore of of Chicagoans, and I mean, uh, he was a humble man to the very end. You know, I was reading that he he would go to events, he would go to protests in his 90s, and he would take the bus, he would take the CTA. Uh, so uh, he's beloved, uh, and, he, and he's certainly earned that status. And and I hope that that he's taught about, you know, in in history books in yeah. Chicago as as a real cornerstone um, Chicago, and not just in the African American community, but but Chicago writ large. We've got plenty more news to get to, including these stories. Chicago police, the second largest police force in the nation, in a standoff with the mayor over the city's vaccine mandate. I deeply believe that the only way that we can maximize safety in our workplace is by getting our employees vaccinated. Governor J.B. Pritzker says he hopes to lift the state's indoor mask mandate closer to the holidays. I want them to go away, too, but we want to make sure that we're keeping people healthy and safe following the the guidelines that doctors are offering for us. So let's jump right back into it. Mayor Lightfoot and the head of the Chicago Police Union still seem to be in a standoff over the vaccine mandate. Paris, what's the latest? Yeah, and, and Sasha, I mean, I think that 80 percent of this is political posturing and bloviating and blustering. Um, I mean, the latest, it seems like uh, the last count was there were 23 or so officers that were going on no pay status because they refused to follow the protocol to upload their vaccine status to a, a secure portal. But if we rewind, you know, rank and file police officers were upset that the mayor went to the media and announced this policy of a vaccine mandate to police officers without going to the union first to negotiate it. And they saw it as kind of like, you know, the latest in a line of disrespect. Uh, and we know that the distrust between the mayor and, and, the, and the police department or police officers runs deep. But I think you have an FOP president, Kat Zara, who kind of took advantage of that and put on a show. And he puts out all these YouTube videos and he says these very hyperbolic things about how we're going to hold the line and we're not going to submit to this. And at one point referring to a mandate as the Holocaust. And then he had to, he had to walk that back. And now there's lawsuits and there's counter lawsuits. And they're on national cable channels um, fighting and yelling and screaming. I think there's just a lot of political opportunism oh here where at the end of the day, there was a there was a compromise, and and it's not a vaccine mandate. That at this point, um, officers just have to upload their status to what what the city says is a secure portal, and and then all is fine. If you don't do that, then you threat you risk going on no pay status. But there's a lot of steps. So the police department gives you counseling if you say no, and you go to the Bureau of Internal Affairs, and someone sits down and says, "Are you sure?" I mean, here's what's at stake. All you got to do is do this, and and no problem. You get to you know go on the job. And they said after that, they were able to get a lot of officers to say, oh, okay, you know, I'll, I'll upload my information. So when you take away all the bluster, it seems like there's a pretty easy compromise here, and and the police department can handle this. Um, but it, you know, Catanzara and, and Lightfoot, they they battle each other on everything, and so this is sort of another front that they want to battle each other on. Well, some suburban police departments were asked to offer help just in case there were officer shortages in Chicago. But the sheriffs of Kane, Kendall and DuPage County, they all refused. What's the story there, Paris? Well, and this is something that routinely happens in an emergency. You know, if if we need reinforcements here, you know, the suburban um, police departments will step in or vice versa. Uh, and they're saying that um, if there is a shortage of police officers due to this mandate, they're, they're not going to send their police officers out here because that 
shouldn't qualify as an emergency. And they, those sheriffs don't support, you know, what the city is doing here with this, with this mandate. Uh, the, the other thing they say is, you know, they, there's a perception here that the state's attorney in Cook County doesn't have the back of police officers and is not going to prosecute or is going to prosecute police officers for misconduct too willingly so they don't think it's safe for their officers to come here to work in Chicago. So um, it doesn't seem like the city will need those reinforcements if if this stays at only, you know, kind of a couple dozen officers that decide not to follow the vaccine protocol and yeah. to sort of be sent home. But um, if that number grows, you know, then we'll have to see what kind of uh, what kind of shortages the city faces, because you're right, they're not going to get reinforcements from the suburbs. Well, Hannah, these vaccine mandate issues, they're, they're statewide, right? The governor reached an agreement with a few more unions over mandating vaccinations. Can you give us details on that? Right. I mean, way back in early August, the governor announced a vaccine mandate for state workers who uh, are employed in these congregate care facilities, um, you know, congregate living facilities, I should say, you know, things like prisons, state-run mental hospitals, developmental centers, um, veterans homes, places where people who live there don't really have a choice. And it's largely, it, it would be the staff who would be bringing in COVID to these places. And so he announced that mandate way back in early August. And here we are almost end of October. He's pushed back the deadline to get, uh, you know, for folks to get their first shots twice now. And he's reached five small agreements with uh, unions that cover about 2,100 state employees. Uh, but there's still some really large holdouts, uh, the Illinois FOP and the, especially AFSCME, which is the state's largest public employee union, uh, about 15,000 workers would be covered under this uh, from AFSCME. And the, the governor has reached these small agreements, um, you know, that essentially say, Yes, we will get vaccinated. There's a very narrow exemption. And if you don't uh, get vaccinated, you don't seek an exemption, then you will be subject to losing your job. But the governor is in a really tricky place. I mean, yes, especially places like downstate, um, you know, prison jobs, really good jobs. And people don't want to be separated from their state employment. But also we've seen, you know, for example, in, um, you know, mental hospitals, it would be really hard to fill some of these uh, jobs, especially the ones that, uh, you know, nurses, doctors, uh, there's just not necessarily the workforce in some of these places. And so the governor, uh, when he's already uh, facing a shortage in uh, places, uh, a worker shortage in places like nursing homes and other congregate care facilities, uh, he doesn't, he doesn't have a lot of wiggle room. And so, um, you know, we know that he's still negotiating with AFSCME, and so maybe we'll, we'll see an agreement in the next week or so. But he's also trying to narrow an old state law that was implemented years and years and years ago to prevent um, doctors, nurses, from having to give any sort of um, abortion care or you know, even advice on abortions. Um, and it's being used in this novel way. Uh, by folks like teachers who don't want to get vaccinated mm -hmm. um, saying, you know, this is our, against our healthcare right of conscience act. And they also, they're using it by the way, also to say that we don't have to get tested for COVID because um, you know, they say that they're well within their legal rights. So the governor wants to 
update that old law. But um, interesting, you know, we will see what happens there. Uh, you know, again, another case of Democrats have to be all lined up for that, especially if they want to get a supermajority vote to have it take effect right away. And that's difficult. Well, Paris, hospitals are losing workers because they haven't met the vaccine mandate. Advocate Aurora just fired 440. Are you surprised when you hear about hospital workers refusing vaccines? No, because I think if you look in context with Advocate Aurora, which is the state's largest, I think it's Illinois and Wisconsin's largest health system, giant, massive system of hospitals and health centers, it really represents less than 1% of the workforce. So 400 sounds like a big number, but taken in context of the entirety of their workforce, uh, it's it's really, it's really, I mean, that's expected. I mean, I think 99% uh, sounds pretty good, you know, especially in a healthcare facility, doctors, nurses, they understand the importance of, of being vaccinated, and especially if they're going to treat patients that are vulnerable. Um, and so that makes sense to me. I mean, I think there were a couple others. Rush ha- had a little bit lower of a rate, and Amita uh, maybe a little lower than that. But, you know, it's important to to, to to look at the totality. Right, the, the yeah, so vast, it's, it's 440 of, of like 75,000 workers. Right. right, right. So, you know, I mean, there's going to be, in every big, giant group of people, some people that uh, just have a bit different view on it. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. You're listening to the Weekly News Recap with WTTW's Paris Schutz and NPR Illinois' Hannah Meisel. Hannah, you reported this week about nursing home staff shortages and about the lack of oversight from the State Department of Public Health of nursing homes during the pandemic. What changes is the governor proposing for the nursing home specifically? Right. So this is a longstanding issue um, in Illinois. Illinois has historically had some of the lowest staffing ratios uh, for nursing homes you know, across, across the nation. Um, and so the governor is proposing changing how the state pays out Medicaid dollars to these nursing homes, um, you know, in in an effort to incentivize higher staffing levels. Well, the problem is, uh, you know, the industry is not all for it, and they are a very powerful uh, group in Illinois, definitely a very powerful lobby around the state house. And, you know, they're saying, well, I mean, this, sure, we're not – immune from scrutiny but my god we're still in the middle of a pandemic and you no one can get adequate work we're 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 in the middle of the what's it called the great uh resignation there there's workers kind of hold the power in um the current state of our economy and so for the governor to propose um you know tying medicaid reimbursements to having adequate staffing levels the Mm -hmm. nursing home industry is like well we we can't do that and so they, you know, I, I and the Chicago Tribune, uh, we both uncovered this unpublished report that was uh, sought by the Pritzker administration last summer, um, and they hired a private consultancy firm, uh, paid you know, like $425,000 for this report that went unpublished for 13, 14 months. Um, and, you know, what it said was actually the state's Department of Public Health they were, you know, similarly short-staffed, and they were the ones who were not enforcing any of the uh, things like adequate staffing levels. And so the uh, says, you know, it's 
it's the state's responsibility to do some of this stuff. And yeah. so the industry points to that and say, well, see, we're not the only ones at fault. And, you know, why don't you get your ducks in a row before you tell us to do what, you know, to uh, change our entire, uh, you know, how we do things, especially because nursing home uh, experts, they are predicting a wave of closures, um, you know, brought on by extra costs having to do with COVID, but also a wave of litigation that's been brought against nursing homes for a wrongful death and injury related to COVID. Former Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel uh, Paris, he was in the news again this week, testifying before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He's hoping to get their approval to become the country's next ambassador to Japan. How'd it go? Well, judging by all the reports out of Washington, it it doesn't seem like he's going to face that much resistance to getting confirmed by the Senate, although Rahm Emanuel, in typical Emanuel fashion, didn't leave anything to chance. You know, he had a he had a letter signed by African American aldermen, um, you know, uh, attesting to what a great choice he would be, and um, you know, he had a political consultant sort of helping him put on a campaign, you know, uh, to to lobby senators to make sure that he got this approval, and and the reason is because of the controversy over his handling of the. The aftermath of the, the Laquan McDonald shooting, obviously he's gotten a lot of anger um, in, in progressive circles and, and from some in the African-American community who felt that he covered up justice for a while there by, by trying to fight the release of that video, which eventually did get released, and we know what happened. After right. that, there was a conviction of Jason Van Dyke. So he had to, be, he had to show contrition and say, it lives with me every day. The buck stops with me. I should have. I should have done better, uh, but you know, please confirm me. <laughs> you know that that's right. kind of the long and short of it. It's always nice to be able to end on on some good news, uh, Hannah. We we got the news this week about the Chicago Sky winning their first ever WNBA championship. My thoughts are, you know, women's sports they don't usually get as much attention, but I saw the fans showed up at Millennial Park. And uh, they rallied. Did you feel moved by the victory? Oh, absolutely. It was really, really exciting to see a team, you know, led by some uh, powerhouse, uh, you know, athletes win. And, you know, in such a really exciting way, and especially the fact that they got to win at home. That's really exciting. So, yeah, I mean, I would love for this to be a kind of turning point uh, for women's sports. And, you know, my God, maybe maybe we'd uh, stop making so much of a deal of women's sports and we just we include it in the realm of all sports it's that, just sports right yeah. that, so, so true and you can't resist really there's this candace parker you know star from naperville coming back home like the biggest star in the world coming home to win the championship for her city it's a beautiful story and, and wnba players are really great role models i think not just for young girls but for everybody and not just the way they play the game which is which is a really really great fundamentally sound brand of basketball. But I mean the way they carry themselves off the court, they get very involved in in social justice issues and all that. So yeah, it'd, it'd be a great thing to see that franchise. It's still a young league relatively if you compare it to the NBA or the NFL. So there's there's room to grow. Absolutely, that is WTTW's Paris Schutz, and also with us NPR Illinois' Hannah Meisel. Thank you both. Have a good weekend. Thanks for joining us for the weekly news recap. To really understand the stories behind the headlines, make sure you hit the subscribe button. Then please take a few seconds to give us a rating and review. It really helps other people find us.
I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I'd never heard of and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.